Tonight, we are going to be speaking about the future of strategic restraint after the conflict in Ukraine. Our guest is Michael Brennis, who serves as the interim director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy and is a lecturer in history at Yale University. Welcome, Dr. Brennis. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so for those of you in the audience, uh, throughout our conversation, you can use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen to ask questions or to upvote others' questions you'd like to hear. I'll be keeping an eye on them, but I'd like to lead off here. So in a recent essay uh, that was widely republished, uh, you questioned George Packer's argument in a, a big article in The Atlantic that more or less uh, the war in Ukraine represents a moment for the revival of, uh, of liberal internationalism. So what did he get wrong? <laughs> um, how much time do you have? No, I mean, I think, to, uh, so first I should start off with what I think Packer did right. Uh, isn't, isn't that he, if you read the essay carefully, he's actually accepting the premise that the United States cannot be a global hegemon in the same way that it was prior to Ukraine, that that is the war on terror, that the way the United States waged the war on terror, uh, nation building, uh, trying to pursue terrorists to the ends of the earth, that's simply not possible in this moment. And so uh, he, as a liberal internationalist though, believes that the United States still has a pivotal, if not the pivotal role to play in shaping the world. So what he argued if, if uh, if my memory serves correct and my interpretation is correct, is is that well, ultimately that Ukraine and the, the assistance that the, that the United States has given to Ukraine uh, provides a model for how the United States can manage global affairs and can uh, essentially support dem democratic movements or democratic governments without getting involved in nation building quagmires like Afghanistan and Iraq, that we don't have to be in engaging in preemptive invasions, et cetera, et cetera. I think there are a couple of things wrong with that. One is this, uh, the, I mean, the overarching problem for me is that uh, he still thinks that the United States has to manage the world and that, that the United States is a fundamental world to play at managing the world. I don't think that's possible in this moment. I don't think the United States should be doing that. Um, I don't think it's in the best interest of the United States to be trying to do that. Um, and I don't think even to Biden's credit, I don't think Biden is trying to do that through Ukraine. Um, I don't think he's you know, he's he certainly through China policy, which we can get into through China policy, he's trying to assert U.S. hegemony there. But I think through Ukraine, he, he's he's not seeing in the same terms. Um, so that's one problem. I think the second problem for me uh, is that he believes that just by engaging in security assistance, ultimately, that won't cause any problems for the United States. And what we've seen historically, and I'm a historian, so I think in these terms is that security assistance can often lead to conflagrations escalating to the point that the United States feels that it has to commit troops. Uh, and we can point to various uh, incidents throughout history. I mean, Vietnam, I think, is a big one. Uh, here, uh, if we want to talk about that, and of course, he would say, I think Packer would say, like, well, of course, we learned the lessons from Vietnam. We learned the lessons, you know, from from escalating or into into a conflict. But I think that that to me is just is is paramount in thinking about committing committing arms or committing uh, weapons to uh, to countries to to stave off autocratic threats can lead to to greater problems for the United States. And there are other problems, but I think I'll, I'll, I'll in, the, in the interest of brevity I'll, uh, as much as I can, I think that the problem for me, what I tried to draw in the piece was this 
idea that he thinks restraint is dead, uh, that Ukraine has killed restraint as a as a basis for foreign policy. And for me, I don't think that's evident. I mean, and I try to bring this out in the piece where I think Biden, for reasons that everything to do have everything to do with the fact that he wants wants to head off a nuclear conflict, that Biden has engaged in some form of restraint. It's not a restraint-based foreign policy, of course, and Biden's not a restrainer, but I think he has engaged in elements of, of restraint. And therefore, and Packer, he himself is admitting that the United States can't do what it did, as I said earlier. Uh, and what I tried to say in the piece was ultimately that and we can get into this too, uh, if you want, was that restraint is actually, in my lifetime, quite uh, viable as a um, as a basis for foreign policy in ways that it, it, it uh, hadn't been, even despite Ukraine and what Ukraine's done to shift the conversation, rightfully so, to to, to uh, a certain direction in foreign policy. Uh, but that uh, there's there's an effort, I think, amongst restrainers to create this coalition of 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 the willing, if you will, to kind of to push back and and to do things um, to question the premises of U.S. foreign policy and how we engage with the world in ways that I, I, Packer, as much as he might want to write it away, can't. Uh, and I think that is then incumbent upon us as restrainers, and I consider myself a progressive restrainer of sorts, uh, to come up with an alternative strategy and to put something forward that can be uh, be, be built upon as we think about where Ukraine goes and, and ultimately how the conflict unfolds and, and eventually it will, it will end, right? And I, th- and I think restrainers have to have something, uh, a singular document or, or documents that people can point to, policymakers can point to to say, this is a vision for, for what comes after Ukraine, and that's and that's what I tried to do in the piece. So, uh, yeah, Packer's wrong. There's other reasons why he's wrong, but I, I'll I'll save I'll save that. <laughs> Maybe your um, some of the people in the audience can bring that up. But yeah, so even if Packer is wrong, though, I mean, there has been a whole lot of critique aimed at restrainers recently. I mean, maybe I spend too much time on uh, NAFO Twitter, but it seems <laughs> like the discourse space has really narrowed, you know, that, for instance, yeah. it is very unfashionable to say that the expansion of Western institutions like NATO toward Russia has contributed to security competition in that area, even though that's something restrainers have tended to argue. Uh, Similarly, things like that Congressional Progressive Caucus letter about the conflict in Ukraine a few months ago ended up being withdrawn amid this uh, this kind of furor with a lot of uh, barbs being aimed at them for saying a lot of stuff that was not all that different from what the Biden administration itself was saying and not really Mm -hmm. calling for anything like, say, cutting off Ukraine or even putting much pressure on them to negotiate. So doesn't it seem like restraint itself has been restrained uh, by Mm -hmm. the by the environment and that there's maybe less opportunity than there was in, uh, say, January of 2022? No, I, I don't discount that point. I think there's something to be said about that. Um, that it's it, there were there was a time. Certain, I mean, post Afghanistan, I think was the moment uh, where it was the high tide of, of restraint. That what comes next uh, is a big question mark. And uh, this is also occurring though within the context of rising. Yeah, escalating. Uh, I, I would say more hyperbolic rhetoric towards China and and Biden as as and his foreign policy towards China has contributed to this. 
Uh, I think I think you have to see both as interacting with each other and creating a, a, uh, an obstacle to, to to restrainers. That is not just Ukraine and the shock of the war and what it did to, again, rightfully so, uh, raise issues about what the United States should and should not do, and that we need to support Ukraine. It's a it's a clearly an illegal war, and uh, it's going to destabilize Europe and it's it's bad for uh, American economic interests. There's all sorts of reasons why I think support for Ukraine was necessary. But that also coincides with, as we've seen <laughs> very conspicuously over the past couple of days of, of this like this China threat um, that materializes in the form of a balloon uh, floating uh, over the Midwest. You know, I think um, that to me, and and the the rhetoric that is that I hear and read on Twitter is read to me very concerning, and that what what you have two things coinciding that I think a problem that's a problem for restrainers is that you have this kind of Cold War era Red Scare ish type rhetoric towards China that feeds xenophobia and nationalism and forces myopic thinking in terms of strategy in terms of of uh, what comes next in the ways that I, uh, after Ukraine, in the ways that I alluded, alluded to earlier and wrote about in my piece. But it's, uh, you know, I, and then combine that with the situation in Ukraine. I think to me, going forward, what's, what's, that's the, mo that's the bigger problem now for restrainers is the China issue. Because what we see with the war, you know, that first couple of weeks and that first month or two, really, you know, you're right. I mean, I, I, uh, there was a reevaluation about what restraint could be and could not be in the wake of those two months and and people some on some restrainers both on the left and the right did not handle that well i think in my view the, the way they reacted to ukraine and and just kind of doubled down on nato expansion maybe i think there's a point there but that that, that to me wasn't productive uh, and i think we kind of lost a moment there in those first two to three weeks and uh, again even beyond that beyond that uh, but we can't get that back. <laughs> that's that's kind of my point of the piece was we can't get that moment back. Uh, let's think about going forward. And, and the way that the war has unfolded in Ukraine, to me, shows that this is going to be a war of attrition. There, there is no solution outside of diplomatic agreements uh, of a negotiated settlement. Um, I I hope that the Ukrainians, Ukrainians will prevail. Um, keeps, you know, the United States keeps sending it seems like it's going to do that despite a Republican controlled house, the United States keeping, if it keeps sending arms to Ukraine, that's just going to prolong the war, you know, uh, in, in, in some ways, uh, a diplomatic negotiated settlement is, is great. But I think the bigger problem for me is, is China and what that does to, to, you know, now that the war has not, uh, has materialized in a, in a way that, that we recognize is, is sort of, well, they're, they're going, that's going, they're, there is going to have to be some sort of diplomatic resolution. China, to me, is that that's the long war. You know, that's the long conflict and great power to competition being the framework for how we understand China, uh, and that just reviving Cold War era notions of what foreign policy is and what the United States can do within that framework to me is concerning. So, um, uh, there's a question of what comes after Ukraine. There's also a question of like how do we head off China and the two. I think again are inclusive, mutually inclusive, as opposed to exclusive. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and let's stick on that China theme for a second. In the State of the Union address last night, there was very little about foreign policy. But one of the uh, one of the things was Biden said, we seek competition, not conflict with mm -hmm. China. 
and that winning the competition should unite all of us. Those were those were two quotes from him. Now, you, you've been kind of expressing concern about this framework uh, of competition and about the kind of Cold War 2.0 uh, mentality. So what's the maybe go into a little more detail on the challenge you see there and what you think would be a better framework, you know, for addressing, you know, what what is a, a very capable state uh, that doesn't always have sure. friendly intentions towards the United States. Yeah, I've um, so before this piece that you referenced earlier about the future of restraint, I wrote this piece for Foreign Affairs with Van Jackson on. Um, I think the the editor, our editor at Foreign Affairs, gave it the title of "Great Power Competition is Bad for Democracy." Um, and what I heard in that State of the Union address uh, last night, as you said, there wasn't very much foreign policy. And what I heard was this notion that Biden saying, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for investing in uh, the United States to outcompete with China. And yes, we don't seek conflict. We seek competition. But why are we seeking competition for the sake of seeking competition? Um, and what does that mean? On what terms are you competing? Right. I think that's also to me, problematic in the sense that from my perspective, it's competition just for the sake of competition on, on economic, military, political terms. And there's not a selection of what are our priorities, right, within within comp competition. But I, I mean, I would say ultimately, uh, first, the idea that we just need to outcompete China is is historically not going to go well for the United States. Um, in in and I referenced the Cold War and in, in the piece that I wrote with Van uh, for Foreign Affairs, we referenced the Cold War as an example um, for how great power competition during the Cold War didn't play out very well, uh, and mostly in related related to domestic issues and domestic problems. That this idea that the, that great power competition is going to revive. Uh, 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 the spirit of of cooperation and uh, going to end polarization and you know create jobs uh, that through through uh, the chips acts and things like that like that to me is is problematic and, and I've said this I've used this word before but to me what that what that does in historical terms it it furthers inequality in various ways uh, but for this racial inequality and economic inequality. Um, in ways we can get into. So the idea that great power competition is going to be a boon to the United States and and be uh, an effort to revive democracy, I don't think is is going to bear bear weight, bear, bear, um, come to fruition. So that's one point I would make. And the second thing I would make, point I make in terms about competition more related to foreign policy, um, and Biden kind of got at this a little bit, but again, as you said, didn't really talk about foreign policy altogether that much was, you know, competition, um, in in my view, as it, as it relates, relates to China, is uh, ultimately you know a a way to kind of further American hegemony. They they don't want competition for the sake of competition and sort of saying like, well, let's just let China compete for these resources and or for the South China Sea. We are in a position as the United States, I think, under Biden, is trying to assert American dominance over. The South China Sea and exert dominance over Chinese supply routes and, and things like that, that that are threatening to the Chinese and the Chinese will then respond. So it's not competition in, this, in the sense of, oh, we, we, we recognize that there are different interests. And I think there is something to that. And we let those interests lie and, and we compete on terms that we can compete. It's, well, we're, we're going to encroach on China's territory. And that's not good. We wouldn't want Chinese to do that to us. And we don't want to do that to them because then if that's 
going to escalate into a conflict. So if we're talking about what to replace this with, I would say, ultimately, there are, yeah, as you said, there are some points where the Chinese and the United States, um, the Americans and the Chinese, the United States and China, we, we will not converge. Our interests will not align. That's a fact. Do we need to compete over that? I don't. I don't think so. But the point. The point is uh, ultimately recognizing that there must, as I see it, a recon- there is also recognition that there are points of convergence and cooperation that must be pursued. Um, that is on climate change. That is on pandemic response. Uh, that is on illegal drugs. Things like that um, that are affecting both the United States and China and the broader world. Um, those. Those factors, those issues, we won't see traction on them unless the great powers, both China and the United States, are invested in in making, you know, ending climate change, uh, in reversing climate change, uh, in preparing for the next pandemic. And the rhetoric of competition just, to me, just doesn't get us there. The framework of great power competition doesn't get us there. We don't, we don't have a means to understand, again, our priorities uh, in terms of our foreign policy, which in my view should be these, these global issues, um, climate change above, above all and, and um, how, that, how that's going to affect uh, countries that fall outside of this great power competition framework that is much of the global south, which um, to go back to your earlier question has largely stayed out of the Ukraine conflict for various reasons due to Russian oil interests or, or whatever. So to me, I think there must be a recognition that we cooperate with China. We try to cooperate with China with the expectation that maybe things won't happen, but we at least have to reject the overarching, the, 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 the rhetoric of competition that envelops U.S. foreign policy, that determines U.S. foreign policy, I would say, and then find points of, of cooperation with countries who don't fall, again, within this uh, framework of great power competition and, and can be relied upon to, to make a better world beyond, um, beyond what we have now. Yeah, well, related to that, you've you argued in the uh, the original article we were talking about that restraint must be instrumentalized for a new U.S. foreign policy. It's not an end in itself, that it will not thrive simply as the critique or opposition to liberal hegemony and that its resonance cannot lie in waiting for America to make mistakes abroad. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean, and, and how should this shape restrainers' aims? Yeah, I mean, I think this this goes back to the point that I made about the early days and weeks and months of the war in Ukraine, where it seemed to be that restrainers were on the defensive. And as you said earlier, like on Twitter, restrainers are on the defensive. You know, whenever I tweet, <laughs> not whenever, but often when I tweet about Quincy or when I tweet about restraint, I get someone in my comments basically saying mean things to me. <laughs> people say mean things on Twitter all the time, but uh, it's it's by people who uh, I otherwise respect, right? Um, and I think there there is something to the to be said about the fact that someone like Packer is out there in the ways that he's doing it are, are, you know, are, I mean, wrong, I think, but Packer is out there offering an affirmative strategy for what liberal internationalism can be, you know, after Ukraine. Uh, And there, to me, wasn't that. There wasn't this sense of, okay, let's let's get out of the um, tyranny of the moment. Let's step back and think about how historically wars end. Uh, Let's also think about 
possibilities for being on the offense as opposed to defense that is yelling at this, you know, the most ridiculous thing that, you know, Robert Kagan says or somebody like that says uh, online uh, and trying to, you know, get rise above, above the noise and create something that people can point to when the question is invariably asked, what is restraint now? People can point to and say, this is a document of, of principles, of, of a vision, of a strategy. Um, you know, I teach grand strategy. Like that, that to me would be something that's productive and useful uh, as opposed to being mired in, in this in this current condition that we're in, which is, you know, feeling again defensive and feeling like, well, waiting for the right moment for restraint to come along again. And that that was the problem for me in the first place with with um, the way things were during the war on terror is that I, it just seemed to be a situation where we we're just waiting for things to, to waiting for a moment to materialize for for us. And it didn't happen uh, until Afghanistan. I mean, there there was, of course, the critique of the forever wars and the, and the way that Obama pursued his his drone program. And we saw the, the very naked effects of, of what that did to the United States and, and to countries that um and that we 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 bombed during that drone program, um, and just the the way in which our foreign policy in the Middle East unfolded, there there was a critique there. But um, it seemed to me that that we were just sort of pointing out critiques and pointing out problems of that foreign policy. And then here comes Afghanistan. Now we have a moment, and this is this is our time to shine. And I I don't want to wait around for that moment again. We because people will die in the process. People people um, countries will be um, conflicts will escalate. You know, and I think. Uh, it, it's a very hard climate. It's a very difficult climate in Washington right now. But if you don't bang your head against the wall trying to do to make change, then then you, again you're sort of resting on your laurels. And, and I'd much rather do the former as opposed to the latter. Uh, and maybe it won't make inroads at the moment. Maybe it won't have traction. But at least when there is a moment that comes along, and uh, or if there is a person, a policymaker that comes along and asks what is restraint, we we can offer something significant. And that's why. Um, I called for for restrainers to kind of come together in a conference setting or some sort of of coalition or organization to to come together and, and create a document of, of sorts or documents that that specify um, in certain terms what what restraint based foreign policy means as it relates to China as it relates to Russia as it relates to uh, climate change as it relates to Ukraine like all these different problems that we're facing you know I th I think. There's a national security strategy document. That's that's the, the reflection of the Biden administration. I think restrainers kind of need something too. Right now, we're in desperate think tanks. We're in desperate universities. We have pieces that we write that that get put out online and and get shared. But th there needs to be, I think, a consortium of sorts that, where we can um, we can put our put our best minds together and think through things and and be a, be a an affirmative voice for for a new foreign policy. Yeah, well, and, you, and you had suggested like there should be you know a, a document like this should be produced by progressive restrainers specifically, and maybe yeah. refreshed every four or eight years or so. What do you think the contents of such a document would be like? Are there are there core <laughs> principles that you think would really stand out, or, or or any things that would really be central? You know, giving us kind of a preview of what that might look like. Yeah, I mean, I think um, yeah, Matt Dess has said this before. I think where where um, um, you know ultimately a progressive foreign policy is kind of um, 
you know, I think he said this in his piece with Wertheim or, or maybe Wertheim, Stephen Wertheim that has said it, which is ultimately progressive foreign policy thinks about uh, what's in the best national interest of the United States and what will protect um, the uh, American people, what will serve, protect, you know, protect the security of the American people. And if you go beyond that, you would think ultimately like what, what can we do to cause the least harm at this moment uh, to the world, right? The, how can we further the interests of the American people, further national security of the, of the American people, and do so in a way that not just causes the least harm abroad, but also thinks about the way our actions affect other, other populations abroad. And I think that has to be a cornerstone of, of American foreign policy you know, in, in the future, is that we have had for too long a foreign policy that thinks in terms of threats, that thinks in terms of competition, that thinks in terms of, of how we can use our military option first and diplomacy second. Uh, and I think any progressive foreign policy that, that, I, that I would envision would first think about the ways in which diplomacy and international cooperation can be used to uh, further the interests of not just the United States, but again, the broader world. Um, and to me, that therefore means you must prioritize global issues like climate change, again, like pandemic relief, like the international drug trade that goes beyond like a war on drugs kind of thing, um, uh, and poverty, right? Economic injustice, racial injustice. These are global issues. They obviously don't affect just the United States. Um, and this then become can become the basis for I mean, some would say this is utopia or, or another version of liberal internationalism that's just more lofty and, and ambitious. But I think that can become the basis for something that is new and progressive and can find offer ways to we can or avenues we can get out of, of competition. I don't think great power competition is going to be as much as I think it should be overturned or rejected. It's not, you know, it's not going anywhere. But I think what we have, I think the challenge for us or as, or for me as a progressive, inter, a progressive restrainer and for those who think like me is how we create a foreign policy within this climate, within this, this context of great power competition. And I think a document that specifies these principles and offers new ideas on global issues that, that don't have to be put in, in again, this US, China, Russia framework um, that create the most, uh, or do, do the most good for the most people. I think that would be something that I would like to see. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I haven't thought out in specific terms what policies would be, um, but I think that's the point: is to say we would we don't we don't have that. We're kind of starting from ground zero in some in some ways in this regard. And I think um, like there are several ideas out there what a progressive foreign policy can be, um, like Stephen Wertheim's piece in the for, in foreign affairs. But there isn't something that we can point to as a as a singular document. Um, and I think that would be something that should be a mission of somebody or some you know group of people um, going forward again if we're interested in offering ideas or, or propounding to, to um, propounding new ideas I think that that's where we could go where we can make an impact um, in this very 
or, or somewhat at least restrictive climate towards restraint? Yeah, you know, I think uh, that idea that you kind of put as a, as one of the, the kernels here of, of uh, having, you know, reducing the harm the United States is doing abroad, it gets to an, an interesting critique I've seen from some progressives in places like Ukraine or Taiwan saying essentially like, yeah, you know, there are all these mistakes of commission that the United States has made, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things like invading Iraq that were extremely harmful, but that if you aren't supporting us, or if you're, say, undertaking bilateral efforts with, you know, the great power that threatens us uh, about your support for us, uh, that you're kind of selling us down the river and that we are not, uh, uh, you know, that, that that is not progressive, that there would be essentially a, a failure of solidarity or a kind of uh, crime of omission. Uh, what do you make of that kind of argument? Because I've, I've seen it get a lot of traction. I mean, I think, I think to me, what's resonated with me is this idea that uh, I, I used to be, my younger years, I used to be much more, you know, um, I'm used to be much more utopia. I used to be much more ambitious. I used to be much more like, you know, let's remake the world kind of thing. Um, and at this point in my life and career, I, I'm, I'm ultimately in a position where I think if progressive restrainers, and this is again, something that Steve Wertheim has said, progressive and, and I think Daniel Bessner too, if progressives don't talk about national interests and what's best for the United States first, then they can't get traction on other issues in a Washington making, in a Washington DC foreign policy making context. They can't get traction on other issues that they care about because it won't resonate within a, um, a, a community of people, a circle of, of people who think first and, and maybe ultimately last about what is the interest, national interest of the United States. Um, and we can talk all day about the fact that the United States has, you know, a willingness to engage uh, in diplomacy with countries who have horrible uh, human rights abuses, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia perhaps being the most blatant example. And then talk all day about democracy in, in, in other forms or furthering human rights in, in other countries. But I don't think that gets us anywhere. I don't think just sort of pointing out and say, okay, we pick and choose which countries we we, we think uh, we should be allied with, aligned with, and we think ultimately and allied with. And we think that, you know, whatever is in the best interest of the United States, you know, vis-a-vis democracy is therefore the best interest of democracy writ large. Um, that's a problem. Yeah, I, but but it doesn't get us anywhere. Um, so trying to, I'm all about thinking in terms of, of solidarity. And, and I do think that there's something to be said about um, progressives as as thinking sort of a solidaristic kind of way about issues like that I, that I talked about, particularly climate change. But I don't think you can build a new foreign policy from that from that basis at this moment. Uh, hopefully we can get there, but to me, what that does is ultimately get you away from the clear and present obstacles to make, to having any residents or having any salience within, within DC. And things, things in this, again, in this framework, things have to start there. You know, you, ha you have to start from where people are at as opposed to where you think they should be. 
And so when I think about progressive and progressive foreign policy, progressivism, progressive foreign policy, I think to me that that's that's the language you first have to speak in. It's like, what is how is climate change pursuing a climate change, uh, international climate change through a framework of cooperation, cooperation in the best interest of the United States. And I can point to various different ways as to why that is the case. And it's, you know, it, it reduces conflict, um, it, it, it creates jobs on an international scale. We can talk about, you know, um, uh, all sorts of other types of non-military options for, for uh, pursuing climate change, not just, you know, putting solar panels on aircraft carriers and things like that. We could also say that's in the national interest of the United States, and that's baby steps. But I think, to me, that that's that's where you have to begin first. And so, talking in in ways that that say, well, unless we're building a, a global movement premised around solidarity, we're not getting anywhere. I, I don't think those things are exclusive to one another. I think you can think of that that where I'm at is one step to getting there, or you can think you can. Uh, as I would pursue both simultaneously, you know, that you can get, you can get some traction with bringing coalitions or creating coalitions or bringing people to your side, convincing them that, that you have um, a role to play or, or they can play a role in foreign policy making, but then you have to talk to people in DC and you have to, you have to make inroads with them. Um, so that's, and that's where I'm at in, in my career in life is accepting the limits of where we are and trying to figure out how we can, if we can put it in these terms, use the framework of great power competition against the um, those who promote it. Like how we can how we can take portions of that framework and and mobilize it to our on our behalf to our best interests. And you know, speaking of this kind of restraint coalition and coalition building, you know, it's it's uh, you know you're, you're talking about building a a progressive kind of restraint national security strategy. What yeah. about the, you know, the kind of left-right element of the restraint coalition? Because, you know, there's clearly several different, you know, political threads that have come together that favor, uh, you know, kind of less, uh, a less adventurous U.S. security policy. Uh, but they also have, can have very different philosophical foundations. Mm-hmm. You know, do you think, do you, how, how rich do you think the cooperation is that's possible, uh, you know, and how how can progressives, for example, think about how to engage in that when, you know, for example, there was a lot of controversy during the Trump administration when he, you know, started some of the balls rolling toward withdrawing from Afghanistan, uh, you know, talked about withdrawing from Syria, uh, but also did a lot of things that progressives didn't like. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, look, I'm a non-resident fellow at Quincy, which is a transpartisan organization. I think there is something to be said about transpartisan alliances, particularly at a moment when, you know, it's, it's we're not at where we want to be, right, as, as restrainers or progressive restrainers, right? I think um, what Quincy offers is a space for like-minded and, and uh people who aren't so like-minded to come together around certain issues. And I think that's important and that's needed and that's not going to go away. And I don't want it to go away. Um, particularly again, at a, at a moment of, of building, which I think we'll be in for quite some time uh, of building uh, networks and building connections and making inroads in, in policymaking. Uh, I think what, what might happen um, is that uh 
restrainers, and I think this is already the case, restrainers might have fissures around certain ends, right? The ends that I might want to see, like the means we might share and that we both believe that is on the right, uh, um, those are on the right in the restraint camp. We both believe that the United States should pull back from the world, should not pursue hegemony, should not do, um, you know, trying to be engaging in a competition with China because, you know, we're concerned about declining primacy. Um, the means in which to, to get there, I think, are, are can be shared, right? Whether we have, we have different, different, um, Particulars, perhaps, but I think there's shared means. I think the ends is, is where things going to get are going to get complicated if if and when like our vision. <laughs> if we ever have a majority voice in Washington D.C., I think that's 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 where I would see conflict happening. But I think it's I think it's productive conflict. Now I don't <laughs> I don't think it's conflict that's going to you know. Uh, it's not going to be like the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks kind of thing, you know, where where we're going to see a revolution and a revolt over it. Um, I, I don't I don't think that's that's the type of 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 um, direction that that we would go in. Um, I'd like to I'd like to think at least. Um, and I would also think that if if like some elements of of a restraint based coalition on the right get realized, that I wouldn't be willing to fight back against that in the same way as right, that I would be if they were um, coming from, from like liberal internationalists from the ends that, that we're pursuing right now. In the sense that, I mean, certain things, what you see is in Congress right now is like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, who should not be supported in my view by any restraint, <laughs> by any restrainer, um, wanting to cut off aid to Ukraine, right? And wanting to, you know, just pull back out of Ukraine because she, because she's, you know, marshalling all sorts of, of rhetoric to do that, much of which makes no sense. Um, I don't think that people should be on the left or the right should be joined in coalition with people like that who clearly don't care, care about Ukraine and clearly don't care about U.S. foreign policy uh, and making the world better um, all that much. Um, I, I don't think that like the right based restraint would, would, would align with people like with with Taylor Green. You know, I just I don't think that's Hopefully not. I don't think that's that's a viable prospect for for people who are who are in my camp. So, which is to say that you know, as 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 long as the coalition that we have can hold around uh, many issues that I think it, it that have brought us together in the first place, um, uh, as long as that can hold for the for time being. That can be useful in getting changed to where we want to go. It's it's a it's a numbers game, right? The more numbers we have, the powerful we more powerful we are. And then having our vision realized, I think, is a problem. I you know, a conflict that leads that leads to conflict is a problem. I'd love to see. <laughs> That's something that I would I would love to a problem I'd like to tackle um, in, in ways that uh, you know, obviously, if, as as we know. Um, would I think you know benefit the United States um, and its foreign policy mission? Yeah, it would be great to have a peace dividend to be fighting over. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's right. That's right. So uh, another question, kind of sticking with this, like, what does the progressive restraint strategy look like? What about you know U.S. U.S. Ukraine policy, which is very much the the hot mm -hmm. topic? You know, both uh, now. During during the conflict and maybe in moving toward a settlement or shaping a, a post-war vision, what 
What does that look like? What role should restrainers be looking to play? I mean, I, th- I think in my view, um, what restrainers can, again, keep keep doing is against instead of instead of concentrating on the amount of money that's getting sent to Ukraine, um, which was something that was coming out of the restraint camp that like, where is this money? I, I think one is to say there should be um, a question of like where like where the arms end up, right? As we're thinking about where the end, where the war goes and, and the evolution of Ukraine as a state, um, that's that's um, out there. But just not you know, doubling down on like how much money the United States is spending on Ukraine, I don't think is productive, right? At this moment. Um, where I see Ukraine policy going, you know, to, to your sort of larger question is, is I think it's, it's going where it's going where it's been. It's going where it's been. There, there, there is no, in, in my view, uh, other option for the United States than to keep doing what it's doing. If it, if it is that is in the interest of the United States, to, I would say, um, not escalate the conflict and not not commit troops. We're not going to commit troops to Ukraine. I think what we're doing right now is is quite good for uh, for Ukraine and for the United States. Um, Biden. Uh, has, you know, largely committed to, I mean, we're, we're seeing some concessions to this now, but like Biden has um, not committed to sending high-tech weaponry into Ukraine. He's not uh, as committed to, um, you know, he's, he's not saying we're going to escalate the war in any capacity. Uh, I think that security assistance for the foreseeable future is is going to be the basis of Ukraine foreign policy, um, which is again to say that this is a war of of attrition. Like Russia is going to make inroads in the war, Ukraine's might make gains in response. Uh, I I don't see that that the war is going to dramatically end anytime soon. So this goes back to my point, which is that restrainers, in my view, can not just keep wishing for for an end to the war, for an end to the conflict and say like, we need to pursue diplomacy now, um, but to have when there is a possibility for diplomacy on the table, um, either on the Ukraine or the Russian side, when there isn't, there isn't at this point. Um, uh, I, you know, who knows I, what those conditions might be. I think there have to be a, a substantial losses in the war for either Russia or Ukraine to to go to the bargaining table. But to that point, I think there can be uh, for restrainers opportunity there to offer something about what a vision for uh, a new post-Ukraine order could be that brings uh, aid and relief and reconstruction efforts, not just to Ukraine, but to other parts of the world. And that Ukraine can be the basis for uh, a larger re-envisioning of what uh, security assistance is and the type of the type of, of aid that the United States can provide in a framework of global cooperation, um, at least among the powers that have been sympathetic towards Ukraine, which are you know Europe and and mostly Western Europe and United States and and some other countries. Um, but that's that's kind of that's 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 at this point not possible. Um, but I try to tease this out in a, in a small piece I wrote 
um, on sort of what comes after what comes after Ukraine in regards to thinking about a future of distributing wealth, redistributive wealth, redistributive justice, um, and Ukraine, the talk of like reparations for Ukraine, the talk of, of forcing Russia to pay for the war, which is echoing back to World War One kind of stuff, like that to me is a disastrous path um, in the terms in which it was it was it was discussed. I think if we're talking about reparations or some sort of of uh, punitive effort to punish Russia, I don't know if that that will do what we wanted to do. Again, given that history, so rather than think in those terms, let's think outside of of that and think about the ways in which nations can pool their resources together to help rebuild rebuild Ukraine and. and uh, restore democracy in, in 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 many ways to other parts of the world, and that would be to me the basis for a better, more peaceful world outside of competition. Like that's that's what we're to, I'm I'm ultimately interested in is trying to think about the ways in which the United States can do that um, through a concert of great powers, because that's again that's the reality that we're in right now. Um, and and to me, this is all very fresh. This is all very new. I, I I've I don't know what that looks like in a programmatic sense. Um, I know that there are avenues out there in the UN and spaces like that. Um, I know that there's um, there's thinking in those, along those lines. But um, to me, I think it's it's I don't even see that the Biden administration has thought about what comes what comes after the war, like six. What comes after? <laughs> you know, I think they barely thought about six months from now. Um, that they're they're playing it as it as it as it unfolds. And I think that's not long-term thinking and it's not useful. And so restrainers then can, can fill in that space, fill in that space that, that requires long-term thinking and long-term solutions to something like, how do you rebuild Ukraine and how do you um, prevent further Ukraine wars? So. Yes. So you've also written a lot in, in some of your other work about the Cold War military industrial complex and its its kind of role in the American political economy. So what's really the the core of, of the uh, the argument or the analysis uh, in in that work? Um, yeah, so this is um, my book um, for mine right um, came out a couple of years ago. Uh, what I tried to argue, and I'm still arguing, <laughs> still think I'm right. Um, it was that uh, the Cold War created a coalition of interests, um, both among Democrats and Republicans, sometimes also on the left and the right, depending upon how you frame uh, both the left and the right, uh, that were vested in the military industrial complex um, a permanent military industrial complex for either financial or political or ideological gain. And that when we think about the endurance of the military industrial complex in a quote unquote long piece, that is the Cold War, I think about it in terms that uh, speak to the ways in which it's not contingent or dependent upon the wars that the United States fights as much as it's dependent upon domestic factors and political economy in the United States and how much the industrial policy of the United States is tied up into making weapons into the military industrial complex. And 
what I argued in the book is that because of the ways that the Second World War, more production for the Second World War, uh, and, and even before that, the New Deal provided a boon to employment, provided investment to local economies, provided um, all sorts of other social benefits. We think about war production during World War II, Blacks, uh, Black Americans and women getting jobs, uh, unemployment being you know, going from about 14% to about 4% in a matter of a couple of years, that the lessons from that were uh, wartime spending and spending for the military can be a boost to democracy, can be a boon to Americans overall, and can rectify a lot of inequalities that are present in American society. And that that, that is uh, an experience that many Democrats or Cold War liberals, who be, or New Deal liberals who become Cold War liberals, take into a post-war era now when they think about how the military industrial complex can provide various responsibilities and roles for uh, not just creating jobs through what's called military Keynesianism, right? The idea that you invest in the military and it creates demand and creates jobs, right? Um, uh, so military Keynesian as a as an economic program or as the basis for industrial policy, that it also can provide social mobility, can provide uh, people, Americans with the ability, you know, these are in the defense industry, for the most part, good paying jobs. They're unionized jobs often. You can provide mobility and, and uplift uh, for many Americans. And that idea really came to shape how we think about the ways in which the military industrial complex unfolds, evolves, and gets increasingly relied upon into the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s. And therefore, what I tried to show in the book, what I try to show in my overall work is that once there is this bipartisan consensus around this by, by the 1950s that the military industrial complex is here to stay, that we do need a permanent wartime, you know, a warfare state or um, some sort of permanent war economy, that when jobs are cut or when jobs are eliminated in the defense industry, it creates a visceral reaction among those who are, amongst those who are employed by the defense industry and the military industrial complex, and it creates an ideological backlash or a reaction amongst those who say, well, we can't cut jobs, we can't get rid of this industry because communism and communism is on the march. Uh, and so the lessons there from the military industrial complex uh, and its history to me from the 50s and 60s, 70s is as the military industrial complex experiences jobs, uh, job losses, and then through Vietnam and, and other wars, there's a, a new investment in, in spending, wartime spending. What people do is they get jobs and they lose jobs, you know, ebbs and flows, and it basically commits them to the military industrial complex in ways that that are interesting for me because they would say, don't cut my job. And when the job is cut, they say, how do I get my job back? Uh, and and that that is then supported by a group of, of politicians, local politicians and national politicians, by a group of ideologues. Um, again, sometimes Democrats, sometimes Republicans. And as the defense industry starts to be in the 1970s, 1980s, sub, you know, within a context of creeping austerity and neoliberalism, 
uh, as it finishes, she starts to experience um, job cuts too, but it becomes a greater source of stability, you know, at a time when unemployment is rising, um, inflation is rising, uh, and then Reagan comes along in the 1980s and says, we're gonna have a defense filled up and save jobs. Um, and this is then how I think about the, the military industrial complex. So I think I think about it not just as like a, a jobs program, but I think about it as having these um, multiple dependents who would like perhaps an alternative to it, i.e. some defense workers, but still can't envision what that alternative would be because it would either imperil the national security interests of the United States, or it would mean the personal loss of their livelihood. And this is a very powerful, enduring, you know, durable coalition that we see animates us in the present as we think about great power competition being the framework for US foreign policy and Biden saying, I'm not going to apologize for creating jobs um, under the CHIPS Act and, and uh, other federal legislation to outcompete China in, in, um, in computer chips and microchips, things like that. Uh, I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, then that being a boom to democracy, people being, people being then dependent upon this industry, um, you're tied into militarism and mil the militarization of U.S. foreign policy in ways that, that you, you, as Americans, even if we're not materially dependent upon the military industrial complex, um, are and, and, and don't want to recognize. And I think that's that's a powerful thing for me as we think about a very undemocratic, I would argue, undemocratic institution shaping a democratic country and a democratic people. We've just got a few more minutes, maybe to to close out. Who are some other progressive voices in restraint that you would recommend our audience check out and pay attention to? Um, I, I there's so many. Uh, I would say Stephen Wertheim is is one. If I'm sure you're familiar with Stephen's work. Um, Matt Duss is another um, who's at Carnegie now. Is former Bernie Sanders um, foreign policy advisor. Both Matt and Stephen wrote a excellent piece in the Republic on. Um, Biden's foreign policy. Um, I also check out uh, Kate Kaiser, who does excellent work on Middle East. Um, Danny, Daniel Bessner, who um, has written some amazing pieces over the years. Um, gosh, there's so many. Um, I've even said, I don't know if she's uh, considered herself a progressive, but Jessica Chen Weiss has written some very important pieces uh, of, of um, in recent months. And her work is fantastic. I mean, that's the thing. This goes. This goes back to my point. We're we're, we're at a moment where um, it, I, I don't. I can't envision, envision like 10, 15 years ago if George Bush gave his State of the Union speech. You know, two days from now, we'd be uh, we'd be seeing a, a reaction that says that we're, that we're talking about it in these terms. Right? I think being progressive having a group of progressive restrainers that we do right now that are very visible and doing good work um, is a testament to the progress that we've made. And I, I could sit here and, you know, list a bunch of other names as I think about them. Um, well, Lyle, Lyle's great too. I mean, he's, he's not in the progressive restraint camp, but he's, he's doing excellent work too. Um, you know, I can list a bunch of names, but I think ultimately uh, the point is, is that we are at a moment where we we do have a presence. We do have a very palpable um, force that that can be exerted on the on the 
on the foreign policy making stage and we should use it to our great advantage. But that's um, that's what I'll say about that. There are, there are other people if I, if I think of them, but you know, yeah. Well, great, great answer. And we will be uh, hearing from Lyle Jeremy Rubin next week yeah. with my colleague, uh, Patrick Fox, hosting. So thank you, everybody, for attending. Thank you, Dr. Brennis, for sharing your wisdom with us. Good night, everybody, and have a wonderful evening. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you.